Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. We're interviewing one of the best of the best minds, um, my friend and the founder and president of a Precision Analytical, the, uh, the, the developers of the famous Dutch test. So anyway, let me give you a little bit about, a Mar about Mark, and we're going to jump right in and start picking his brain on um, a podcast that is sure to be one of the best ones this year. Uh, Mark Newman, MS, is a recognized ep expert and international speaker in the field of hormone testing. He has spent nearly 20 years within specialty labs uh, developing and directing 24-hour urine hormone testing, organic acid testing, salivary hormone testing, um, really the really the gamut. I don't know that there's anyone else in our field who's got the kind of expertise that Mark has established over the years in hormone testing. Um, and because of that, he's got a fairly unique and thorough perspective on blood, urine, and saliva hormone testing. Uh, and this experience, this collection of experience really kind of led to the um, development of his lab, Precision Analytical, and the creator of the Dutch test, which stands for Dried Urine Test for Comprehensive Hormones. Um, the question of how best to test hormones is what drove to, uh, the creative process that initiated his lab. And honestly, it's, it's one of the biggest questions that I'm asked all of the time. How do we test hormones? What's the best way to do it? Um, anyway, blood, uh, which is actually serum, but uh, urine and uh, saliva testing all have limitations. In fact, Mark and I have been talking about quite a few of them, and I finally hit the record button so we can share this conversation with you. Uh, so Dutch, this dried urine method that he developed, uh, has unique testing methods which, which bridge the gap between existing methods to create better tools for healthcare practitioners to address the needs of their patients. Uh, Mark, welcome to New Frontiers. Welcome again to New Frontiers. Thanks, Kara. It's good to be here. It's, you know, it's really nice. It's always nice to have you here. So, you know, our first podcast together, and we just really, I think we're both kind of lab geeks. I mean, you're the, you, you know, you dwarf me in lab geekness, actually, quite frankly, but I, um, I appreciate it. And I've got a background in lab science. And I remember, you know, when I first met you, you came to my attention through uh, Bethany Hayes, who is a friend and a colleague and a teacher of mine. Of course, Bethany is a physician who's been teaching in hormone testing forever. Um, and Sarah Gottfried, another really brilliant woman, OBGYN, um, science scientist. And both of, both of these women who I admire uh, so greatly were using Dutch. And I, and I, coming from a lab background and knowing how hard it is to do some of the urine analytes you guys were looking at, you know, some of the estrogen metabolites, I was like, who is this guy? And is he really doing it? I remember when we first started figuring out, you know, the two hydroxy um, and the two methoxy and the four hydroxy and methoxy estrones that they were challenging. And I, you know, our first conversation, Mark, I don't know if you remember, but I was like, hmm, you know, are you for real? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and one of the coolest things about our conversation is that you well and it, it, it continues because that was some years ago is that you're really one of the most real and open guys about what you're doing and I per I became convinced and my team here at our clinic 
in, in the value of your testing. I mean, we use it all the time now and I absolutely love it and it, because it's easy and it's, and the results we get are really good and we appreciate you and we appreciate your openness. Um, so just give me again, a little bit about this journey, you know, creating this four spot urine, uh, collection and, you know, yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. I mean, the, the journey for me is, is, I mean, it's all about information. I think for me, you know, seeing what you can get from this test, what can you get from that test? Um, and for me, it was sort of born out of frustration of seeing situations where if I look through this lens of the metabolites I get in urine, I learn something. And then when I look through this other lens of salivary testing and I'm looking at the cortisol pattern or, you know, some of those things, um, it really adds some clarity to the picture. And I'm sitting there thinking, if I only see through one of these lenses, like I'm I really, I mean, we're always guessing, right? Like ultimately you never know reality of what's going on at the tissue level and this and that and whatever. So there's always some guesswork and we'd like to guess well, right? And so the more lenses you look through uh, for a particular, you know, family of hormones or, or, or set of symptoms or whatever it is that you're trying to resolve, um, the better off you are. And so for me, I kind of bounced vocationally from 24 hour urine to some organic acids, to saliva testing and blood testing. Um, and, and started trying to piece together, you know, in my own mind of like, okay, if I really want to get the most complete picture of what's going on, you know, how do I want to do this? Uh, and the conversation for me, started a little bit with the cortisol because, you know, we had this like overarching narrative that said, Hey, people who are heavier have more cortisol. Like there's this general correlation between weight gain and cortisol. But then, you know, we had people applying that knowledge to saliva testing. But then when I went and looked in the literature and looked at the data we were collecting, which was, you know, millions of data points, there wasn't a correlation between the free cortisol levels and BMI or weight gain or whatever. And like, well, wait a minute, where did this all come from? And then, then find out, oh, well, it's actually the significance for that particular variable is found in the cortisol metabolites, mm -hmm. which you have to go to urine to find. So now I'm going, okay, wow. I want free cortisol because it's the most important thing I can learn about your HPA axis is up and down free cortisol. But if I don't have those metabolites, like there's a really big piece of the picture missing. And so that's where this started is can we come up with a testing system um, where we can see both pictures at once? Yeah. And then can we look at the estrogens with sufficient accuracy? Can we look at progesterone? Can we look yeah. at the estrogen metabolites and androgens and so on and so forth? Um, and that initial picture that we built um, really opened up um, the number of lenses that you get to see through. And, and we had some pretty good success with that. And so then we went about, you know, the validation process and then jointly or simultaneously saying, okay, well, what, what other lenses can we, you know, can we open up here? Like, oh, we can look at melatonin and we can look at oxidative stress and we can look at vitamin deficiencies and we can look at, you know, neurotransmitters for what limited value they may have. Um, and so that's, that's been the quest is how much meaningful information can we get out of one thing that's cost effective and, and relatively easy for the patient to do. And that, so that's been kind yeah, of yeah, um, yeah. the search that we've been on is how to do that. And then at the same time to really run it through um, a critical eye so that we can also tell people like, here's where it's good. Here's where it's great. And here's where it's not. And here's, 
you know, in a scenario where it's not, like we want to make sure that we're, you know, A, being transparent about that, but then also like giving people the direction of, you know, where do you go for that particular question? Because that's one of the things I think that really limits the lab testing world is we want to be a solution for everything. And it's just like, I think that's one thing you, you have to admit early on is, like you can't have a tool that works in every scenario because it's just, otherwise you just end up with, you know, frustrated uh, people on both ends. So that's awesome. All right. So now that you've answered every question that I had for you today, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Theranos. Uh, oh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I want to, so I want to just kind of tease out. Well, actually we could talk about Theranos. I, you and I, again, have both become a little bit addicted to following that Silicon Valley laboratory disaster. It's a little right. bit heart, heartbreaking to see. Um, but one of their, of course, the big, big problem was they don't, they're not open. And you're, I mean, and you're just, re, they, they were at, they didn't publish anything. All of their, and, and their, da, their data had to be proprietary because they really weren't doing anything. They were failing and making right. all of these claims. And it was really pretty horrible and disheartening when in fact you're doing the exact opposite and you're trying to just really keep the conversation going and out there and doing the best job that you guys can do. And you just published a paper, which I'm thrilled about. And we're going to talk about in a minute, in a minute. Um, so again, you know, Mark, I just, one of the reasons that I have been so drawn to Precision Analytical is because I just have really good conversations with you and I feel like I'm heard as a clinician, that my questions are answered. You know, you've got Dr. Carrie Jones in there as your chief medical officer now, and I think she's just doing a fabulous job, again, answering clinicians' questions, being open about what we might see that we, you know, when I, I mean, having been in a lab, I know sometimes results look a little bit wonky and I want somebody to speak to me about them and not just put me on hold or send me to some, you know, distant voicemail or otherwise, you know, get me out of their, their uh, range. So I just, I appreciate how, how consistently you guys just are there for us, for us clinicians. But anyway, so you unpacked a lot. You, you, what, you, what you're talking about is, you know, just multiple uh, specimen type and, and methods need to be obtained if we're going to get the most accurate picture. Um, and you learned this with the fact that there's more cortisol in obese individuals, but you can't, you're going to actually mistreat them if you only look at that variable. As you pointed out, you need to have the inactive cortisone and you want to have all of the metabolites at your fingertips to be able to accurately treat. Otherwise, you're going to be attempting to, to just blunt that cortisol overdrive and not really nuance what's going on in the HPA axis in general. Would you say that that's true? I would say it can be true. I mean, th that's the thing is if you, if you only look uh, through one lens, you're going to be right like a decent amount of the time, but you're going to run in the wrong direction, like at a sprint uh, for like too many people. Right. Yeah. So, and when you, when you look at, you know, if you're looking at a three dimensional picture, two dimensionally, like you're just not seeing everything. Right. And that's, so that's what we're trying to do is open it up so that in, in some of these cases um, you know, you're getting more clarity on um, on what the the totality of the picture is as it relates to in this example cortisol, um, so that you can you know just head in the right direction uh, more often. So, so sometimes you know that extra information all it does is confirm what you already think, and then yes. off you go with increased confidence. Yes. But in the cases where it tells a different story or it adds a new wrinkle, like those are the cases where I think we really can help people 
to better unpack what's going on with that particular person given their scenario um, and, and then hopefully respond appropriately and just have better success with those, you know, with those, especially with those tricky cases. Well, you know, we actually covered some of this as a side note. Um, Dr. Jones and I did a, a really fun webinar where we moved through cases. Most of the cases were from my clinical practice and I think she, presented a couple from hers, but we talked about some some of those conundrums, you know, a, a, a PCOS patient who doesn't present with the typical PCOS pattern and right. um, some, you know, some more unusual cortisol patterns and so forth. So for people interested in that pattern analysis, looking at um, steroid hormones, <clears throat> you can access this webinar and we'll uh, link to it in our show notes. Um, okay, so Let's talk about now the you've been looking at urine, 24 hour urine, you've been looking at serum and um, you know, you've been looking at saliva, sex hormones. Let's move over to sex hormones. Um, And you, the gold standard in the greater medical community is serum for sex hormones. Um, But But you're suggesting that this four-point uh, urinary hormone collection that you're doing is probably is 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 sufficient in most cases to supplant serum. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, that I mean, you mentioned the paper that we published. I mean, that was the the central issue of the paper was: do you get equivalency for a dried urine sample as it relates to a serum sample? So we looked at urine versus serum. And we looked at our dried urine versus just liquid urine, just to make sure that variable was covered. So a 24-hour um, urine, your four-point your four dried urine, and serum. Correct? Right, exactly. And so what we found is, is between all of those variables, we found equivalency. So, um, so we're able to get the same information from a urine test as we're getting from a serum test. So that's all well and good. But if it's the gold standard, then what's the point of, like, why should I move? And that's where... Uh, for me, you see, just start to see some advantages for um, for a urine model over serum. Uh, one of those being that when you uh, there's a a nice paper, it's actually really old, where they looked at serum in women in the luteal phase, and they're looking at progesterone, but they were measuring it like every five minutes or something. Yes, right. Um, and some women, I mean, serum works fine, but in some women, the reality was they moved from like five to 35 throughout the course of a day, right? Because you're getting these surges of LH and hormones and then boom, you're you know getting these surges of progesterone um, and up and down it goes throughout the day. And so our test represents about 14 hours of the day. So you take the highs, you take the lows, you average them out. I think that's an improvement. You can, you can work with either, but I think that's um, an improvement. Um, the second thing then is just the added information is yes, I can get progesterone. Yes, I can get estradiol out of serum, but particularly with the estrogens, you know, we've got what 10 estrogen metabolites. So that adds a lot of value, I think in two things, one confirming, right? So if I have a low estrogen and all the metabolites are low, like that's nice for confirmation of like, yeah, you're not making any estrogen, right? Yes. Um, But then secondly, you get people with some funky metabolism patterns, right? So yes. if I've got a woman who's got high metabolites, high estrogen, like everything's high. Like this is a real clear, like you just make too much estrogen. Okay, fine. But if you look at a second woman who has an elevated estradiol, your main estrogen, but then that downstream metabolite 
or metabolites are low, Mm-hmm. Now I look at that and go, hold on, this is different. Like, yes, you have too much of this hormone, but it's because your clearance of that hormone is, I use the word sluggish a lot. Like there's sluggish clearance yeah. <clears throat> of that hormone. And if that's the case, then the solution for you, you can be more precise by knowing that in that my goal for you is not to dramatically decrease your production of that hormone. It's to address what's actually going on, which is you know a metabolism issue. And there are things that you can you know, dig into and look at in terms of, you know, getting that more in a more of a balanced situation. And so, um, but, but then also you can look at complementary information of, you know, if my estrogens aren't metabolizing well, now I'm also worried about breast cancer risk. Yeah, that's right. You say, you, okay. So yeah. now I dig into breast cancer and I say, well, if you look at the, the pathway there, what is going to help me sort of not get breast cancer is proper methylation. We can look at methylation. Proper glutathione detox. We've got a glutathione deficiency marker. You know, then you get if you jump back to the methylation conversation. If you don't have enough B6, B12, that's going to hurt your ability to methylate well. And the Dutch test has a glutathione marker, a B6 marker, a B12 marker. Um, you know, one of the consequences of having high estrogen can be that it induces B6 deficiency. So that's where we're going, well, wouldn't it be nice if your hormone test also had a marker for B6 deficiency, which we now have two of those, right? right. So that's, that's like, I think the biggest benefit of the urine test is it's a good average over time, but it just gives you so many more variables to look at that you get to characterize each family of hormones at a higher level and then, you know, better yeah. solutions come from that. It's just, it's really useful. It's clinically really useful. And so, so you can get the estrogens, you can get the progesterone metabolites. You've demonstrated that both the, est- the, the urinary estrogen and progesterone, um, the estrogen itself and the progesterone metabolites correlate with serum. So you demonstrated that right. and you published it in BMC right. chemistry. Right. And this, and there'll be a link to this paper on the show notes folks. So please go and go and grab it. And it's just a really, a really nice write up. So you've done, so you've demonstrated that equivalency, but then you've just articulated the really fabulous benefit is that you get to look at all these metabolites and really really look under the metabolic, you know, kind of the, the sex hormone hood of what's going on with the folks that you're testing. And you can right. get in there and fine tune it and make big differences in our patients' lives. And again, you're looking at 24 hour where, you know, and you don't have, and you're just not getting that in serum. You can't right. keep sending somebody to be stick, stuck. The other piece is, I think the thing again, as I, as I started out our conversation with, is that some of those analytes are in really micro quantities and you have to be good and smart analytically to be seeing them. And, and I, and I appreciate the, you know, the time and energy you've put into um, successfully looking at those. Yeah. I think the, the two, two sides of that coin, one is, making sure that you have a method that works well. And the second thing is making sure that you concede for an analyte for which you do not have sufficient sensitivity. Um, you know, I, I can look back over what 12 years or so and point to f- like four different labs, um, ourselves being one of them that added for methoxy E1 because yeah. it's so interesting conceptually and then have taken it off their panel. Right. Yeah. And some, and why? Because it's interesting. You want it, but 
it's there's so little of it that it's this noisy little if anything signal i think you know there have been methods that have been commercially available where they're literally just measuring background noise and trying to tease out a four methoxy e1 value um for us we see it on every patient it's below what we call our functional sensitivity meaning i can't with confidence give you a number that's reproducible for that therefore we say look if you want to know about methylation you're going to have to look at the two. So two hydroxy gets turned into two methoxy, just like the four gets turned into four methoxy and evaluating methylation based on those which are comfortably within the range that we can look at both accurately and reproducibly is a better approach than trying to do something that you just can't do with enough confidence, you know, that people yeah. should be making medical decisions based on it. So yeah, it's about methodology, but that it's also about, you know, making sure that your data is good enough to actually, you know, give it to people. Yeah, that's right. You know, eventually we'll be able to see, you know, we'll, there, there'll be a method that comes out where we'll be able to pick it up and, you know, other really interesting things too, I'm sure, but, you know, it's not there yet. And just admitting that you can't do it and pulling it off your test is really, really important. Um, so incidentally, he's Mark's talking about some of the some of the estrogen metabolites here, and on the show notes, we'll put up their uh, steroid We'll we'll put up their steroid hormone pathway chart so that as um, you're listening, you can grab it. And I wish that I had mentioned it so that you could have grabbed it at the beginning of the talk. But you know, go and and, and look at it now, and you'll see the four O H E one. Um, being converted to the 4-MeOE1, so the 4-hydroxyestrone being converted via a methyltransferase enzyme to the 4-methoxy. Um, right. And then you can see on the pathway chart that it's not highlighted in green, the 4-methoxy, because they can't measure it. Um, but what is measured is highlighted in green, right? Uh, you can Am see right? what's measured there being the two the two hydroxy and the two methoxy. I know, and then, yeah, your... for the four for the four hydroxy, we put the four methoxy there conceptually on the report. Like this is where you want it to go, but there's not actually a value because it's not yeah, it's not something we can measure with enough accuracy. But what you have, what what's being actually measured is highlighted in green on this chart, correct? Oh, on that chart, yeah, yeah, yeah. in on the steroid pathway, yeah, we put in yeah. in green the things that we're actually monitoring. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Um, and then the other nice thing that you did that you did that is that you were able to kind of simplify the whole urine collection journey. It's a pain in the butt to have to do a 24 hour urine collection and kind of drag the jug around with you or do it on a day that you're going to just stay home all day. Um, and then you do it in the four spot and you've, and you've obviously demonstrated that that's really nicely correlative to a 24 hour collection. Any comments on that? Well, that was part of the publication was yeah. to correlate it to blood. That's primary. And then secondarily was to correlate it to a traditional 24-hour urine. Um, and that data looked really solid as well. But that, yeah, that was part of the validation too. Because, I mean, A, there's no reason to do that if you don't have to. Yeah. Um, but B, when you do it that way, you lose your cortisol pattern. And so that's, um, so that I think there's a twofold benefit uh, to doing it the way that we do it as opposed to how it had been traditionally done. So let's talk a little bit about um, saliva. So you guys made a pretty big leap in your journey uh, with your cortisol assessment. 
and you just you know so just talking about urine cortisol and then your movement over into or over into cortisol and the and the metabolites and so forth looking using saliva so let's talk about that and i also want to talk about your you know just some, a few thoughts on saliva we haven't talked about saliva sex hormones at all but the, that's a method that's obviously widely used by um some of my colleagues so you know, secondarily, we'll touch upon that conversation a little bit. But first, let's just talk about using saliva for cortisol and metabolites versus urine and where you're at in that journey and what you guys are doing. Yeah, the, I mean, what we're trying to do is use whatever body fluid you can to best leverage information, right? So if, uh, and we can talk about the sex hormones, but like the short story is that saliva is not it's not as accurate for reasons we can get into when it comes to the sex hormones. I think there are better ways to do it. Urine serum, both being probably a better way to do it. Um, and that's a longer conversation, but when it comes to cortisol, um, you know, we just said earlier that the gold standard for sex hormones is serum and that's right, but it's not the case for, um, for cortisol. So when you look in the literature for cortisol, it's pretty well established that looking at free cortisol is better than, looking at a total cortisol. So that meaning the salivary free cortisol is better than a serum total. Like that's your starting point. But then looking at it at really specific points in time is really important too. And that's where all of this literature has started to emerge on the cortisol awakening response. Meaning what we've done historically is just look at the up and down pattern. So look at it in the morning generally, look at it in the afternoon and at bedtime and let's see how this pattern looks. Well, we can do that with a traditional saliva test and we can also do that with our regular urine Dutch complete, right? The up and down pattern of free cortisol. But if you wanna look at something that's got a little bit more precision to it, which is the cortisol awakening response, you have to have a, a free cortisol measurement within the first five minutes of waking up. So I wake up, my cortisol is relatively low, and as the light hits the back of your eyes, right, it triggers this whole biochemistry um, cascade that essentially simulates what happens when you're stressed. When you're stressed, you get this sort of biochemistry cascade. The same thing happens when you wake up. So if you can capture a point within the first five minutes, and then you can capture a point 30 minutes later, the cortisol awakening response is this lifting cortisol that happens in those first 30 minutes. And when they look at specifically that change and they look at things related to cortisol, fatigue, depression, whatever, um, that change in cortisol is a really important parameter when it comes to assessing the HPA axis. So when we looked at that in the literature, we said, like, this is something we need to add. So that's where we developed the Dutch Plus, which is the same urine collections four times throughout the day but in addition to that, we're using these little cotton swabs to pop in your mouth, one when you wake up, one 30 minutes later, another one 30 minutes after that, one at dinner and one at bedtime. So now I have this diurnal pattern, which we already had in the urine, now we're getting it from saliva. Why? Because we can add that additional point right at waking, and now we have the diurnal pattern plus the cortisol awakening response um, which if it's, even if all your results are normal within the range, but that, that change in those first 30 minutes is yes. either flat or exaggerated, meaning too small or too big, yes. that says something about the likelihood that your stress response is either under or over responsive. And so that's, that's kind of been, you know, it's something we, gosh, when did we release that? About two years ago, something like that, year and a half. Um, and that's been a really nice addition because it's taking a test 
the Dutch complete, which is really complete. And it's making it even uh, broader in terms of what you can learn about the HPA axis. Yeah, it is. We love it. I mean, we're on board. I don't, I, I, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. And I appreciate, um, you know, again, I, I, I don't know. I'm like really become a big fan, a fan girl over here. So sorry, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I just I do. I mean, I think just coming from a lab background, I just appreciate your willing to willingness to go in there. I think you guys were really the first clinical laboratory to make the car available. Am I am I correct in this in this? Country? Yeah, there was when we when we released it, there was a lab that was doing it, um, which good for them. But it was really you couldn't actually do it because what they were saying and with all due respect is I need you to wake up, don't rinse your mouth. And I need two milliliters of saliva within the first five minutes. And most people just flat out can't do that. So what happens is if it takes you too long to give sufficient sample, uh, the cortisol's already gone up and you've screwed yeah. it up. Right? Yeah. So what we did is we said, look, if this is going to work, we're going to have to use the cotton swabs that they use in all the research. Yeah. And so what you do is you pop this thing in your mouth and literally 90 seconds later, you have sufficient sample and you put it back in the little gizmo and then you do another one, right? The reason that saliva labs can't do that is, is just a logistical sort of unfortunate thing in that those cotton swabs absorb progesterone. So if you're trying to present an entire picture of sex hormones and adrenal hormones at the same time, you can't use the cotton swabs and you need a whole bunch of saliva. So then you're stuck in this little Jeez. sort of between a rock and a hard place where you want to give this information. It's sort of there, but you just can't. So we, so that's where we came in and said, look, we need to do this and we need to do it right, which means two things. One, you have to collect using the cotton swabs so that if the timing is correct, and then two, which is a more minor distinction, you don't have to do this, is use mass spec. So we use LCMS so that you, you not only get cortisol, but you also get the inactive cortisone, which is essentially just a secondary version of that up and down pattern. And in a, in a small fraction of people, there's some funkiness there that needs to be teased out between the two. But in, in the average person, all you need is the cortisol. Um, but it's but the timing has to be right, or it's not really useful data. Well, and it's always nice that you're if, if you're using the same method that they used in the research, which is kind of heartening. So then you're you're you, if you're looking at the studies and hoping that you're doing, you know, if you're a clinician like me, and we're looking at the car research out there, we want to you know we want to be doing as close to that as possible if we're going to infer um, their findings to what we're seeing. Right. Well, that's where the, it's the lab's job to set this up well, right? Because yeah. if you give your patient a kit and they go home and collect and they don't tell you, hey, it took me 12 minutes to collect enough sample. And then you say, you know, hey, you have a flat car. Well, maybe they don't like maybe, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. that's where it's on us to really dig into these types of things and yeah. make sure they're set up well so that there's not this unknown uncertainty sort of embedded in the method that you're using, you know, to evaluate all of this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, well, I mean, it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it, I'm glad that you're doing that and correctly um, actually capturing the specimen. I mean, it is, it's not, um, it's not simple. 
I mean, our patients, we have to work with them pretty carefully to make sure they get the car. I mean, and I having just done it myself, as you know, because we were talking about my right. lab results recently, I mean, it really right. is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, right. But if you want to get that accurate specimen, it's worth it. And it's, right. just, it's cool that you're doing the, you know, you're using the same, the same method. Um, all right. So anything else you want to comment on with regard to the research paper as we're just wrapping up here? Uh, other findings that you didn't report on that are... Uh, useful for us to know? Well, I think the only other thing um, that was revealing from the study, which was we didn't attempt to publish as of yet, um, which I think, again, highlights some of the utility when you're just trying to be practical. Uh, when it comes to sex hormones is what we kind of alluded to earlier is the challenge of doing the same thing with saliva testing. Because there's this, yeah. there's this temptation to say, look, if I go to the literature, I really like salivary cortisol. Why? Yeah. Because it's easy to collect and it's free cortisol and that's a legitimate advantage. So then you yep. take that information and you apply it to the estrogen and you say, if free cortisol is better, free estrogen is better too. But what you may not realize is you have just dropped 10,000 fold in terms of concentration levels. So, okay. So right. now what you have is you have something that's very difficult to do well analytically. And what we found from our study is, so we've got these women, right? They're doing blood tests. They're doing the urine tests. And the same day they gave us enough saliva that we could send it to, I think, seven different labs, right? So we've got all kinds of different methods. Some of them are using mass specs. Some of them are using EIAs and LIAs and whatever. Um, and what we found is that if you want to simplify sort of the findings is that if you just isolate the women in the luteal phase, which means this is quote unquote normal for a premenopausal woman. And then you isolate the postmenopausal women that we had do the test in serum. There's a tenfold difference between the average of those two groups, meaning luteal is, you know, way up here and the, and the postmenopausal women are way down here and there's a big difference between the two. And that's good because that's what you're trying to do in your practice, right? Is say, who are you? Are you sufficient? Are you deficient? Do you have excess? Whatever. You need to be able to tell the difference. When we look at the urine, you get the same thing. There's this tenfold gap of the average premenopausal woman's at three. The average postmenopausal woman is 0 0.3, right? So there's this enormous gap to ask the question, which of these groups do you fall in? But when we looked at those same people on the same day in saliva, there was essentially a co-mingling of all of that data, meaning the average postmenopausal woman was about the same and intermixed with all of the premenopausal women. Now, why is that? Is, it, is that a reality of saliva? Probably not. The, the issue there is that those hormone levels, whether you're pre or postmenopausal, are really below the level at which that technology can give you a good number, right? And that's part of the problem. This, so this is, gets to the point of why we published our data. Because if you go to, and I, again, I don't mean to be overly negative on saliva, but it's an important point that if you go to a saliva lab and say, how can I know that this correlates with serum, they'll give you a publication. And it's likely uh, the Wong study from 1990, which did show good serum correlation with estradiol. But if you got to go into the lab and look at their methods, most of the methods that people are using are about 20 times less sensitive than the method that that gentleman used to prove his point. Yeah. So you still are left with the burden of proof of knowing that using a commercially available method that we can differentiate well the sufficient from the deficient. 
Now, when you move into an easier hormone like cortisol, yeah, it's easy. Like any lab that does salivary cortisol um, that is a halfway decent lab is going to give you something really useful when it comes to salivary cortisol. But when you move to, let's just say testosterone and progesterone, that's kind of in that middle range. Some of the labs I think do a really good job and some of them like the methods just aren't that sensitive and it's a struggle and you're going to start to get a co-mingling of sufficient and deficient people. But when you move to the estrogen, what I have found, and that's not to say it's impossible for someone to do it well, but what I've found from evaluating the commercially available methods is none of them can well differentiate sufficient from deficient. And that's one of the things that we found um, in our study, although that's not data that we've published at this point. Um, but I think it's a, it's a, I'll just say it's a nice benefit for the urine test that the deficient crowd and the sufficient crowd um, is really well separated and it allows you to tease out information. I'll give you an example. The progesterone, if I see a postmenopausal woman, she's going to have low levels of progesterone, right? But because my method is really sensitive, I can actually see within that group which postmenopausal women are even low for a postmenopausal woman. Now, what do I do with that information? Well, I know that for a postmenopausal woman, this is no longer an ovarian hormone. It's an adrenal hormone, right? Progesterone comes from the adrenal gland when you are postmenopausal. So if you're lower than the rest of your postmenopausal friends, now I, it's a key, it's a clue to say, go look at the cortisol, right? So then what does the Dutch test has? It has this enormous amount of information on cortisol. I was just looking at a woman's results the other day who had this very picture of low, really, really low, severely low progesterone, and she was on an opioid. And when you looked at her cortisol, it was flat as can be, right? And so that's, that's where we want to offer a more compelling and complete picture so that you don't go into that woman's case and start trying to fix this low progesterone with progesterone. Maybe she needs progesterone, but what's her, her bigger issue is the poor woman's got no cortisol, right? And so we want to make sure that we give you enough information to, you know, to do well with those types of patients. Right. And this is influenced by the opioid, which you, which you, in that um, case. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. 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 So again, having the whole picture is, um, yeah, it's really, it's really beneficial. Um, okay, Mark. As you know, as always, it's 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 fun to get to pick your brain for a while, and I think that this was, um, you know, it was a good conversation. It'll be useful for clinicians. We'll ping you on any questions we get, and then, you know, we'll we'll circle back and and continue the conversation. I know you've been thinking a lot about saliva and optimal specimen or multiple specimen and you know we'll talk about we'll continue this conversation we'll talk a little bit more about testosterone next time actually we didn't really touch on testosterone at all this time but we'll we'll just continue to tease this out for for clinicians yeah but there are lots of little subtopics within this and i think each of those is is worth kind of uh getting to the bottom of so that you know just so we're making good decisions and then and the decision is not always that dutch is the best you know option but for right. the situations for which it works you know it works pretty well that's right yeah and i appreciate you clarifying that for everybody all right well thank you for joining me today and uh to be continued thank you for having me